faintly understood, and then hush. For in the pure loftiness of the rector's heart still bloomed the pure white snowflower of his young bride. This white snowflower did not wither. That other creature who had gone off with that despicable young man was none of his affair. The mater, who had been somewhat diminished and insignificant as a widow in a small house, now climbed into the chief armchair in the rectory and planted her old bulk firmly again. She was not going to be dethroned. Astutely, she gave a sigh of homage to the rector's fidelity to the pure white snowflower, while she pretended to disapprove. In sly reverence for her son's great love, she spoke no word against that nettle which flourished in the evil world and which had once been called Mrs. Arthur Saywell. Now, thank heaven, having married again, she was no more Mrs. Arthur Saywell. No woman bore the rector's name. The pure white snowflower bloomed in perpetuum, without nomenclature. The family even thought of her as she who was Cynthia. All this was water on the mater's mill. It secured her against Arthur's ever marrying again. She had him by his feeblest weakness, his skulking self-love. He had married an imperishable white snowflower, lucky man. He had been injured, unhappy man. He had suffered, oh, what a heart of love! And he had forgiven. Yes, the white snowflower was forgiven. He even had made provision in his will for her when that other scoundrel. But hush. Don't even think too near to that horrid nettle in the rank outer world. She who was Cynthia. Let the white snowflower bloom inaccessible on the heights of the past. The present is another story. The children were brought up in this atmosphere of cunning self-sanctification and of unmentionability. They too saw the snowflower on inaccessible heights. They too knew that it was throned in lone splendour aloft their lives, never to be touched. At the same time, out of the squalid world sometimes would come a rank, evil smell of selfishness and degraded lust—the smell of that awful nettle, she who was Cynthia. This nettle actually contrived at intervals to get a little note through to her girls, her children. And at this, the silver-haired mater shook inwardly with hate, for if she who was Cynthia ever came back, there wouldn't be much left of the mater. A secret gust of hate went from the old granny to the girls, children of that foul nettle of lust, that Cynthia who had had such an affectionate contempt for the mater. Mingled with all this was the children's perfectly distinct recollection of their real home. The vicarage in the south, and their glamorous but not very dependable mother, Cynthia. She had made a great glow, a flow of life, like a swift and dangerous sun in the home, for ever coming and going. They always associated her presence with brightness, but also with danger, with glamour, but with fearful selfishness. Now the glamour was gone, and the white snowflower, like a porcelain wreath. Froze on its grave, the danger of instability, 
The peculiarly dangerous sort of selfishness, like lions and tigers, was also gone. There was now a complete stability, in which one could perish safely. But they were growing up, and as they grew, they became more definitely confused, more actively puzzled. The mater, as she grew older, grew blinder. Somebody had to lead her about. She did not get up till towards midday, yet blind or bedridden. She held the house. Besides, she wasn't bedridden. Whenever the men were present, the mater was in her throne. She was too cunning to court neglect, especially as she had rivals. Her great rival was the younger girl, Yvette. Yvette had some of the vague, careless blitheness of she who was Cynthia, but this one was more docile. Granny perhaps had caught her in time, perhaps. The rector adored Yvette and spoiled her.